Section 22 of Army Letters from an Officer's Wife, 1871-1888. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. Army Letters from an Officer's Wife, 1871-1888 by Francis Rowe. Section 22, A Last Letter from 1888. The Walker House, Salt Lake City, Utah, September 1888. The weather is still very warm, but not hot enough to keep us from going to the lake as usual this morning. The ride is about 18 miles long and is always more or less pleasant. The cars, often long trains, are narrow gauge, open, and airy. The bathing is delightful, but wholly unlike anything to be found elsewhere. The wonderfully clear water is cool and exhilarating, but to swim in it is impossible. It is so heavy from its large percentage of salt. So everyone floats, but not at all as one floats in other waters. We lie upon our backs, of course, at least we think we do, but our feet are always out of the water and our heads straight up with large straw hats upon them. They have a way of forming human chains on the water that often startles one at first. They are made by hooking one's arms close to the shoulder over the ankles of another person, still another body hooking onto you, and so on. Then each one will stretch his or her arms out and paddle backward, and in this way we can go about without much effort and can see all the funny things going on around us. As I am rather tall, second position in a chain is almost always given to me, and my first acquaintance with masculine toes close to my face came very near being disastrous. The feet stood straight up, and the toes looked so very funny, with now and then a twitch back or front, that soon I wanted to laugh, and the more I tried not to, the more hysterical I became. My shoulders were shaking and the owner of the toes, a pompous man, began to suspect that I was laughing, and probably at the toes. Still, he continued to twist them around, one under the other, in an astonishing way that made them fascinating. The head of the chain, the pompous man, became ominously silent. At last, I said, almost sobbing, can't you see for yourself how funny all those things are in front of us? They look like wings in their pin-feather stage, only they are on the wrong side, and I am wondering if the black stockings would make real black wings, and what some of us would do with them after all. After that there was less pompous dignity and less hysteria, although the toes continued to wigwag. It is a sight that repays one to watch when dozens of these chains, some long, some short, are paddling about on the blue water that is often without a ripple. It is impossible to drown, for sink in it you cannot, but to get the brine in one's nose and throat is dangerous as it easily causes strangulation, particularly if the person is at all nervous. We wear little bits of cotton in our ears to prevent the water from getting in, for the crust of salt it would leave might cause intense pain. Bathing in water so salt makes one both hungry and sleepy. Therefore, it is considered quite the correct thing to eat hot popcorn 
and snooze on the return trip. We get the popcorn at the pavilion, put up in attractive little bags, and it is always crisp and delicious. Just imagine a long open car full of people, each man, woman, and child, greedily munching the tender corn. By the time one bagful has been eaten, heads begin to wobble, and soon there is a land of nod, real nod too. Some days, when the air is particularly soft and balmy, everyone in the car will be oblivious of his whereabouts. Not one stop is made from the lake to the city. Faye and I were at the lake almost a week. Garfield Beach, the bathing place is called, so I could make a few watercolor drawings early in the morning, when the tints on the water are so pearly and exquisitely delicate. During the day the lake is usually a wonderful blue, deep and brilliant, and the colors at sunset are past description. The sun disappears back of the Okira Mountains in a world of glorious yellow and orange, and as twilight comes on, the mountains take on violet and purple shades that become deeper and deeper until night covers all from sight. There was not a vacant room at Garfield Beach, so they gave us two large rooms at Black Rock, almost one mile away, but on the car line. The rooms were in a low, long building that might easily be mistaken for soldiers' barracks, and which had broad verandas with low roofs all along both sides. That queer building had been built by Brigham Young for his seven wives. It consisted of seven apartments of two rooms each, a sitting room and a sleeping room. All the sitting rooms were on one side, opening out upon the one veranda, and the bedrooms were on the other side and opened out upon the other veranda. These apartments did not connect in any way, except by the two porches. Not far from that building was another that had once been the dining room and kitchen of the seven wives. Those Mormon women must be simply idiotic, or have their tempers under good control. It was almost interesting and a remarkable experience to have lived in one of Brigham Young's very own houses, but the place was ghostly, lonesome beyond everything, and when the wind moaned and sighed through the rooms, one could fancy it was the wailing of the spirits of those seven wretched wives. When we returned at night to the dark, unoccupied building, it seemed more spooky than ever, after the music and light at Garfield Beach. Our meals were served to us at the restaurant at the pavilion. I made some very good sketches of the lake, Antelope Island, and a number of the wonderful black rock that is out in the lake opposite the Brigham Young House. About two miles from the city, and upon the side of the Wasatch Mountains, is Camp Douglas, an army post, which the new department commander came to inspect. The inspection was in the morning, and we all went to see it, and were driven in the post with the booming of cannon, the salute always given a brigadier general when he enters a post officially. It was pretty to see the general's wife partly cover her ears and pretend that she did not like the noise, when all the time her eyes were sparkling, and we knew that every roar of the big guns added to her pride. If all those guns had been for Faye, I could never have stayed in the ambulance. It is charming up there in the post, and the view is magnificent. 
We sat out on a vine-covered porch during the inspection and watched the troops and the review. It made me so happy, and yet so homesick, too, to see Faye once more in his uniform. The inspection was all too short, and after it was over, many officers and their wives came to call upon us when wine and delicious cake was served. We were at the quarters of the colonel and post commander. That was the second post we had taken Mrs. Ord to, and she is suddenly enthusiastic over army people, forgetting that Omaha has a post of its own. But with us she has been in the tail of the comet, which made things more interesting. Army people are nice, though, particularly in their own little garrison homes. There is only one Mormon store here, and that is very large and cooperative. Every Mormon who has anything whatever to sell is compelled to take it to that store to be appraised and a percentage taken from it. There are a few nice Gentile shops, but Mormons cannot enter them. They can purchase only at the Mormon store, where the Gentiles are ever cordially welcomed also. Splendid fruit and vegetables are grown in this valley, especially the fruit which is superior to any we ever saw. The grapes are of many varieties, each one large and rich with flavor, and the peaches and big yellow pears are most luscious. Upon our table down in the dining room there is always an immense glass bowl of selected fruit, peaches, pears, and grapes, and each time we go down it seems to look more attractive. We have been to see the tabernacle, with its marvelous acoustic properties, and the temple which is not yet finished. The immense pipe organ in the tabernacle was built where it now stands, and entirely by Mormons. From Brigham Young's old home a grand boulevard runs, through the city, across the valley, and over the hill far away, and how much beyond I do not know. This road, so broad and white, Brigham Young said would lead to Jerusalem. They have a river Jordan here, too, a little stream that runs just outside the city. There are grand trees in every street and every old yard, and one cannot help feeling great indignation to see where, in some places, the incoming Gentiles have cut trees down to make space for modern, showy buildings that are so wholly out of harmony with the low, artistic white houses and vine-covered walls. It is such a pity that these high red buildings could not have been kept outside, and the old Mormon city left in its original quaint beauty. We will return to Omaha soon now, and I shall at once become busy with preparations for the winter east. I have decided to go home in October so I can have a long, comfortable visit before going to Washington. Faye wishes me to join him there the last of December. I am not very enthusiastic over the prospect of crowded rooms, daily receptions and teas, and other affairs of more formality, but since I cannot return to the plains, I might as well go to the city, where we will meet people of culture, see the fascinating diplomatic corps, and be presented to the president's beautiful young wife. Later on, there will be the inauguration, for we expect to pass the winter in Washington. End of section 22. End of Army Letters from an Officer's Wife, 1871. 1888 by Francis Rowe.